welcome to Living Your Legacy. I'm Tom Maritel, president of UBS Americas and co-president of UBS Global Wealth Management. Today, I'm really pleased to be joined by my special guest and a good friend of ours at UBS, Tom Davidson, the CEO and founder of EverFi. And a little background for you, Tom's been a leader in education technology for more than 20 years. In 2008, he founded EverFi, a digital financial education company, and he's led the company from a startup to a thriving organization. In December of 2021, EverFi was acquired by BlackBot, the world's leading cloud software company powering social good. And today, the company serves more than 2,000 customers, including several Fortune 500 corporations and financial institutions like UBS. Both of our organizations have built a strong partnership forged out of our shared belief in the power and the importance of education. One of the initiatives that we partner with EverFi on is the UBS Financial Education Program, which provides the opportunity for our clients and their families to engage in customized, self-paced financial education courses and make progress towards their financial goals. Today, I'm excited to speak with Tom about how he's living his legacy through his passion for education. So, Tom, I really want to thank you for joining us here today. So good to be here, Tom. I appreciate you having me. Maybe, Tom, let's start by going back to the beginning. Talk to us about what inspired you to found Everclass. Thanks so much. You know, and it's been interesting. We've gone through such a journey over these last 14 years. Sometimes it seems like yesterday, and sometimes it seems like a 120 years ago. But um, uh, it's been just such an amazing journey. We started the business about 14 years ago. It really came out of an interesting experience I had, Tom, um, really early in my career. Um, I was pretty sure that I wasn't going to get a real job. So in my senior year of college, I went to Bowdoin College in Maine and, um, and ended up running for the state legislature when I was in college. Got elected. Um, and uh, my senior year, I ran. I got elected and took office You know, right after I graduated, about six months after I graduated. <clears throat> and it was a fascinating experience because you're just um, you vote on 4,000 different bills that range from deer decoy legislation to, dis, you know, to, um, reworking nuclear power to lobster trap regulation, everything in between. But I really cut my teeth and decided, um, that education technology was going to be one of the areas that I focused a lot of my time and attention on. And one of the things that we did in Maine, and this was in the mid nineties to late nineties. So it was pretty early in the game. We set up a, what the nation's first one-to-one laptop initiative in a state. And we set up all of these things around it to fund teacher training and professional development, access into the classroom for broadband. So it was pretty early stuff, um, but at a really big scale relative to Maine, where every single kid in the state, when they entered middle school, would get access to a computer and a laptop and broadband and various things. Um, that really opened my eyes to... The idea that um, education was was really going to change with this technology, um, and I didn't want it to be one more place where you just had the haves and the have-nots, where you know the districts that could afford to have it could get it, and the districts that couldn't. So it was very interesting that impetus for that early, you know, for the early ideas of EverFi came from that. And, and years later, I actually teamed up with two of my close friends from Bowdoin, and we um, started. Uh, EverFi. And um, EverFi was really based on the idea that there was this learning layer that was missing in schools around financial education. How did markets work? Mental health around digital devices and digital addiction. 
areas around sexual assault prevention, um, bullying. So these things that are kind of outside the core, and we started to build software doing that, and then we teamed up with amazing folks like you who brought it to these districts free of cost. All right, so, so Tom, let's, let's move maybe from there to just take a look at where you are now. Like uh, Under your leadership, Everfi has grown. It reaches more than 7 million learners each year. There's just a, a massive network of more than 25,000 schools, you know, thousands of teachers across the U.S., and now uh, you've expanded uh, internationally uh, with uh, operations based in, in the U.K. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you, you went from the idea uh, and starting that company with your, with your buddies from Bowdoin and then how you grew and scaled the organization to where it is today? You know, one of the funny things is, Tom, we started, I think you've heard this before, but we started the business actually in the back of a RV driving initially in, in the Black Belt of Alabama, the Mississippi Delta, certain parts of Louisiana and the Native American reservations in Texas. We spent the better part of the first couple of years just driving the school districts, meeting with teachers and understanding how they were teaching some of these things that I called kind of exoskeletal things like financial literacy or how markets worked and stuff. And um, what was important to me was really two things. I I had the realization really early on that it was going to take us a thousand years if we just kind of built the company on our own and kind of went on our own instead of teaming with the private sector and really big organizations and really putting them in the business of delivering this in the school. So best way to think about EverFi is from day one, it's really a three-legged stool. There's schools in a place um, somewhere in the country now, you know, across the world. There's EverFi who's building these courses and also implementing them in those school districts. And someone on the other side, like UBS or the NFL, um, Mass Mutual, you know, you think about the NHL, Major League Baseball, Facebook, and others who are paying the entire cost of that to go into school. So it was really important for us to do two things. One was we wanted to scale it. We thought that the network would really benefit from the idea of millions of kids being up on the same courses. So you could learn from that. You could see how they used it. You could make mistakes. The network effect of that would benefit. And then it also allowed you to create a certain standards that teachers and parents could trust. So right now, if you want to teach around, uh, you know, someone around bullying prevention or, you know, compassion or financial literacy or something, you still have to like go to the internet and harvest the parts of, you know, courses or videos or YouTube videos or things where you're just not really sure, like, whether it's a great quality, whether it's been tested or research or efficacy-based. And that's the thing that we do by bringing so many students on the same network. April's Financial Literacy Month, so that's an annual opportunity to focus on the need to improve financial literacy, especially among our nation's youth. And I, and I know, you know, you mentioned this before, uh, this is definitely a, a topic close to your heart, but could you talk, you know, to us about why financial education is so important in terms of achieving systemic impact? This one's pretty near and dear to my heart, you know, Tom. I, I, um, I really struggled with this. Like, I, I had a just a lot of student loans. You know, my partner Ray was the first in his generation, you know, in his family to go to college, um, and uh, he, when we started the business together, he talked to me a lot about how difficult it was to, you know, find access to funding. I, you know, my student loans really weighed on me and um, my, you know, my family had gone through a pretty tough, you know, financial situation from time to time growing up. And, 
And um, I just looked at the pressure that that put on families, um, my family, and ultimately families, you know, across the country. It's if you if you are growing up under financial pressure, food insecurity, wondering, you know, how you're going to access college or certain things. It's incredibly confusing and it's really dynamic. So it's changing all the time. And you're seeing even now with like decentralized finance and crypto and all these areas, it's just one more layer where people are left behind of that conversation. And so, you know, when I get to financial literacy month, it just really always highlights to me, um, how we still have this massive gap in the country that we teach kids, you know, um, there was this funny thing on the internet the other day and it was kind of like, I learned Pythagorean theorems, you know, in school, but didn't, you know, never learned how to balance my checkbook. I'm really, you know, excited for Pythagorean theorem month or something like that. Um, you know, that it, we don't teach this stuff still in schools and it should just be a part of every single class, every single grade, of every single year to reinforce this stuff. So it's not just moments in time. And that's what I think, you know, financial literacy month can be a great booster shot, but it needs to be 12 months a year. Yeah, absolutely. And and when you think about uh, how far somebody can get behind really early uh, in their, uh, in their careers, uh, how, how important that education can be in terms of making a difference uh, in their financial well-being. So maybe, you could tell us, you know, your views on what do you think the role is for the financial services industry in terms of improving financial literacy and well-being? It's a huge question, and it's an appropriate question for right now. And, you know, one of the things when we got into this, Tom, that we tried to allay, like, the regulators and consumer groups and others, we tried to say to them, listen, we need to not only embrace the industry, but you've got to bring the industry deeply into the funding and implementation of this into schools. And part of the reason with that is I've seen, we've always seen Everfly as kind of a two-step approach. One was to kind of build the learning layer. But more and more, what you saw was there was this infrastructure layer that was missing along the way. So you have these, you know, you teach a kid about financial literacy, but how about opening 529s for them? How about, you know, setting up savings accounts for them? How about building the infrastructure? So it just becomes totally part of the ecosystem of truly like a one-two punch where you provide the education, you back up and give booster shots on that education over time, but you also do things really early where kids in the country are growing up with infrastructure. And that's where I think the financial sector um, it needs to step in. And by the way, like the regulators and the Fed and, you know, others have really embraced this idea. And so I think that's the next wave of all of this is, is learning plus infrastructure is kind of the next financial literacy. The global pandemic, how that's definitely impacted all of our lives. And we had to, we had to adapt to a virtual environment. Like a lot of companies, you know, UBS definitely reacted quickly. We implemented a, a remote uh, working environment and that's changed the way that we look at how we'll conduct business in the future, post-pandemic. Uh, and then certainly, as, as every parent knows, um, schools across the country had to really similarly adapt to that. And I remember chatting with you at the onset of the pandemic about uh, everything that uh, EverFi was doing and how you know you were working with, uh, with school systems around the country. One of the things, though, in some ways, what was seen as a savior of the learning process at the beginning of the pandemic, and in some ways, has attracted 
maybe some, some negative opinions about the virtual learning environment versus the physical environment. So could you maybe talk just a little bit about how has EverFi responded to the, obviously, an increased need for digital learning capabilities, but then also, what do you think the future of education is going to be? Is What kind of hybrid environment are we going to see? Certainly, I mean, to say it was a moment in time, that is for sure. And what I'll tell you is, um, I just want to thank you all. I don't think anybody was more aggressive about calling me than you were and your team was about. And I don't say this just because I'm on this call. I mean, we, I remember you would call me and say, hey, listen, I need to do this. I want to do that. Tell me, come back to me in 24 hours and tell me what we can do in these schools. And I really just give you a ton of credit. I, we work with thousands of customers. I love them all um, deeply and evenly like my children. But you all were – it was kind of mind-boggling to us how aggressive you were about trying to help kids, particularly in the communities that you and I have spent a lot of time talking about. So I, I appreciate it, but more importantly, the schools appreciated it a lot, not just that you asked, but that you put a lot of dough and – treasure behind um, those efforts. But I think the thing that we've seen is, um, you know, what, what was the benefit of this, you know, terrible moment around the pandemic was it, it really did fast forward probably, I would say, 15 to 20 years of implementation cycles of of technology in schools. Um, and I think that was as much a mental thing where people just needed to get over the idea that, you know, there was kind of like in-person versus technology. And um, we always, you know, whenever we would go into schools for 14 years, we would say there's nothing more important to the implementation of our technology than the teachers and having them in the classroom. Education is always going to be teacher-based. I really believe that. I think it's going to always be front-of-the-classroom driven and oriented um, and because teachers play such a, you know, they're nurses, they're caregivers, they're, they're people who give hugs and, you know, and focus on the well-being of kids. They're always going to be there. But I think what's exciting now is the platforms are getting so much better. You know, like the platforms have really stunk for a long time, meaning like the one area, anyone who has a kid, you know, these learning management systems are kind of clunky. It's hard to find things, you know, it's hard to, and what's really fun about that is they have just gotten a huge base list over this time where it's just becomes easier for teachers to communicate, easier for them to nudge, message. And I think like what you're going to see is it's going to go, there's going to become a lot less like curricular structure in schools and just a lot more creativity and the ability for teachers to ultimately treat students uniquely based on their unique positions in their lives. And that's, you know, truly the ultimate goal in my mind of technology is to enable the treatment of kids um, based on the individual circumstances of their lives. You know, we've made this assumption over time that the 28 kids that walk into the classroom every day ate the same thing, woke up with the same parents, you know, um, and I know no teachers feel that way, but it, wouldn't it be amazing if the tools themselves allowed you to curate and individually prescribe learning and, and, and access in these various areas to kids based on that. And that's, that's what I think the pandemic, that will be an offshoot that is a faster clip than we would have thought. Tom, one of the things that um, certainly got highlighted, and it's a topic you and I have, have discussed many times before, during the pandemic was just the, the inequality of access to high-speed broadband, uh, in particular in rural and Native American communities. And, and maybe you could talk a little bit about 
uh, you know, what are, what are some of the, the things that you've seen in terms of delivery of, uh, of your learning curriculums and, and where do you think we need to progress uh, in terms of high-speed broadband access? Well, it's a table stakes thing, and I think, um, you know, it's interesting because people look at the, you know, look at the FCC or the Fed, they look, you know, um, but it's, I think number one is it's, it's an area that has to be prioritized by state and local governments and, you know, the local public utility commissions and these others. It's, it's a little different in every state, but it's gotta be a baseline thing that, that there's parity there, you know, I mean, if we can't control the parity of the pipes and the speed, we're not going to really be able, like, we're never going to be able to control the content that rides through that. Right. So you've got to, you've got to create parity on access. And so I think, you know, you're seeing some things um, coming out of, you know, the commerce department and Gina Romano is amazing. I've known forever and others who are making these big pushes to create that parity, but this has got to be a time where that has to, you know, that has to become a national imperative. Um, and, um, and it's got to happen very, very fast. Um, but we also can't get um, that. And what's interesting about that is if you make that commitment, it's important because you're never going to be able to create parity on the device side or the access side up top, you know, as much as you are just the pipes and, and the speed that comes into these buildings. So I just consider it a national imperative at this point. I think it needs to be funded fully. And I think the private sector needs to step up and do their part on that too. It certainly is a critical part of our, of our nation's infrastructure and, and certainly part of, part of our security as a nation as well. You know, you mentioned before your tenure in the state legislature and how you really focused in on, on education and started thinking about this private-public partnership in the area of education. Maybe I could you know, flip it around a little bit. From your corporate client for the training of their, their employees in terms of skill sets, what are the themes and trends that, that you're seeing today? It's a fascinating time. I mean, what I, no, no one's had more front row seats than you, but you know, we're, we're lucky enough to do, in, you know, the internal training pieces for such a wide swath. You know, we do it for the NFL. We do it for Google and Amazon. You know, we get just have a, such an interesting insight in this. I think there's a couple of different things. Number one is um, the internal, what I would call like internal equity issues. And these are going to be things like harassment, diversity, inclusion. And, and it's not just the lame training videos that we've seen over the years, but um, there's super interesting stuff coming out in terms of, um, you know, um, reality, virtual reality, you know, situational experiences and things where people can be put in certain situations, have to work through those. That's some of the stuff that we've done actually on the school side far more than we've done on the internal culture side. Um, those areas are areas that are, you know, we just have seen such an uptick in the desire and the need for that coming out of the national, you know, conversation around race, around equity, around social justice, and obviously, you know, post Me Too in those areas. Um, what's more, what's also interesting, I wouldn't say more interesting, but what's also fascinating is I would call that there's this next layer that's come where companies are more and more stepping up into the areas that we've spent a lot of time on in our school side are coming to us and saying, we want to build corporate-based, kind of plan-based financial education programs for all of our employees. 
And we want to actually have that be a family offering so that we can have all, you know, all of their members of their family and them as, you know, as employees or partners in our business. So that's number one. Number two is there's been this huge push around mental health and self-care um, and people looking to the companies themselves to provide um, that type of education, that type, those type of resources internally. So that conversation coming out of the pandemic, I think, is one that's not going to go back to the way it was before. And um, and then there's um, and then I think the last piece is just less like a learning piece, but an expectation piece of like, what can I be doing in my time as like a steward, as a person that works at this company to connect with communities, to do things more philanthropically? How can I be? Um, how, how can that be a benefit, you know, that's actually given to me for, you know, not just that I can give back, but also that I can develop leadership skills around mentoring kids or being involved in schools. And so I think all of those kind of internal training, internal learning things are all coming together. You know, Tom, we call it, um, we've called it, we actually kind of coined the term in a Fortune magazine article that I encourage people, you know, to read. Um, it's the only thing that I would ever encourage anyone to read that I wrote. But, um, but it's an interesting thing where we coined it a couple of years ago and said, listen, impact is a service. Think software as a service. Impact as a service is going to be one of the next great spaces, you know, in technology and how you enable the biggest institutions in the world to be in the business of doing good for their employees and for their communities is going to be an enormous opportunity. And that was kind of why we eventually teamed up with BlackBot. And when we did this deal was the idea that you could create a company that really helps companies much faster than we could on our own do that. That's a great way for me to tee up my last question for you, you know, is around purpose. Clearly, you know, you've got a very strong sense of purpose. Uh, BlackBot has a strong sense of purpose. Everfi's had a strong sense of purpose. And your company's had an incredible impact on countless students and their lives. So maybe let's let's turn this to a bit more personal question. When you think about the journey you've been on from that from back in that time, you know, in the R V driving around the deep south, how do you think about your, your own personal legacy? Maybe too personal for this call, but it it's been a fascinating time, you know, these last ninety days, you know, our our business, um, you know, we started our business with literally $900. And, um, and there were times when I sat in hotel rooms and, and, um, with my hand in my head with little kids at home, literally not knowing what we were going to do. I mean, I would call my wife and say, literally, you can ask her, literally don't buy diapers this month. And, you know, can we just get a break on certain things here? Um, and, uh, to get to this point where, you know, we had a, an exit that was bigger than, you know, it's just beyond anything we would have ever expected. Um, but it also is funny, my friends who've gone through this and others, I mean, I'm sure there are people that listen to this call who've had their companies and, um, it's a weird experience to, you know, to sell your company and you, you wake up every day for 14 years thinking one way and then you wake up, um, um, another way on the next day. And, and it, th- it throws you a lot of different emotions. I think what's been interesting about it, and I'm in the early innings of the next phase of this, um, has been how much it's centered me fully back on just what we do, you know, like the mission of what we do. And, um, and I think for me, 
you know, my legacy is this, like I, when they, you know, chisel into my stone, you know, above me at the end of the day, I want to have built, you know, some institutions that outlast me that are networks, they're institutions that um, help the biggest, you know, that basically greets the skids for the most impactful companies and people in the world to be able to engage easily to the benefit of kids in the communities that I think have pressed down, not I think, where our country has pressed down on them for 400 years. And, um, and if I can kind of create institutions that far, you know, survive out and live me and, and, um, and my team, more importantly, my teammates, that's, you know, that's what I want to do. I think that, you know, when you go to the Mississippi Delta, when you go to the incredible towns of the Black Belt of Alabama and East Baton Rouge Parish and places, um, uh, this is, there's incredible opportunity for us to create systems that, um, that like make those communities incredibly competitive. And, um, and it can happen and it's real and it's tangible and it's happening today. So that's, that's what I want to do. I've kind of like thought about a lot of things. That's what I'm going to spend my next 20 years working on. And I'm going to do it with you and the team. All right, Tom. You know, I want to thank you again for joining us today. It's an absolutely great conversation. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. Well, thank you so much. And likewise, and wishing you all the best. And I also want to thank our listeners for sharing in this journey with Tom and me today. Each month, we'll be publishing a new episode of Living Your Legacy, each of which will explore inspiring stories just like Tom on how others have worked towards defining and contributing to their legacies. So again, thanks for joining. The information in this discussion has been prepared by and reflects the opinions and various investment views of the speaker. UBS Financial Services, Inc. has not independently verified such information and does not guarantee its accuracy or completeness. This information is being provided to you for your information purposes only and does not constitute a recommendation or an endorsement by UBS Financial Services, Inc. of the author, the securities, or views stated herein. Any specific security Securities discussed should not be considered a recommendation or solicitation to buy or sell any particular security. You should not assume that any investment in any of the securities was or will be profitable. UBS Financial Services, Inc. or its affiliates and its employees are not affiliated with any third-party speakers mentioned. UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, different in material ways. We are governed by different laws and separate arrangements it is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.